in order to reinvent your business, in order to disrupt your business, you have to care about your business. And Tim Leberecht says most people don't. They just don't give a fuck about the business. Too little people are really keen on working for the organization, for the company. And he wants to change that, and his concept is the concept of the business romantic. Okay, so business and romantic seems like things that are pretty controversial, but he's got a concept that tries to combine these two, and he does not only want to change the, the way we work, but also the way we live, because living and working, he says, is one. So Tim, please come on stage and tell us how you are planning to do this. The stage is yours. Sure, thank you. Ah, wonderful to be. I always wanted to be on the Schmitz uh, Tivoli stage. I lived in Hamburg. It's uh, amazing. So I'd like to start with a little exercise. Uh, so you have an opportunity to stand up again, please. Stand up yet again. It's good for you. And I want you to think of the best moment of your professional life. Close your eyes and think about the best moment of your professional life. What did you wear? Where were you? Who were you with? What did it feel like? Okay? And now I want you to turn to one of your neighbors and whisper a short description of that moment into their ear. Slightly uncomfortable, right? <laughs> if you prefer to talk, talk, but actually you should whisper. All right, lots to talk about. <laughs> Interesting, so we'll come back to that. Uh, have a seat. The presentation will start. Uh, interesting exchange, okay. So I wanna start off with a moment um, that I believe is shaping our societies, our businesses until today. And that moment occurred 200 years ago in 1816, in the summer of 1816. And it is also known that summer as the Summer of Love, when a curious group of British poets, including Lord Byron and the Shelleys, descended upon Lake Geneva in Switzerland to celebrate, uh, fueled by copious amounts of opium and alcohol, to celebrate the formation of a new movement against the prevailing sentiment of the time, which was reason and enlightenment. Of course, I'm talking about the original Romantic movement, uh, Novalis, the German romantic poet, really captured the spirit of that movement while with this quasi-mission statement that he wrote, to romanticize the world is to make us aware of its magic, mystery, and wonder. It is to educate the senses to see the ordinary as extraordinary, the familiar as strange, the mundane as sacred, the finite as infinite. And I often ask myself, what would the romantics make of a hyper-connected age? in which we are expected to be flawless, consistent, productive, productivity machines at work, in which we are used to hearing you can only manage what you measure, and in which the algorithmic corporation seems to be the next big thing. What would the romantics make of Uber, which introduced search pricing during the hostage crisis in Sydney a couple of years ago due to heightened demand because an algorithm told it so? What would the romantics make of Facebook 
which in a uh, year in review highlights collection for one user included a picture of his daughter, except that that daughter, four years old, had died that very year. Inadvertent algorithmic cruelty. What would the romantics make of this application called Spreadsheets that allows you to enhance your sexual performance based on data analytics? <laughs> Frightening, isn't it? And if that doesn't work, you can use this service, Breakup Text, to send automated breakup text messages to your loved one or not so loved one. Or you can use this service called Invisible Boyfriend. I understand there's an invisible girlfriend in beta. Uh, invisible Boyfriend lets you fake a, uh, rent a fake boyfriend who sends fake text messages, fake emails, and even makes fake phone calls. So in light of all these applications, it seems that we have already entered the uncanny valley of us falling in love with the machines, with our operating systems, as so beautifully depicted in the movie Her by Spike Jones. The New York Times wrote about the movie and said, the great question is not whether machines will be able to think. The great question is, will humans still be able to feel? And indeed, when everything is quantified, measured, optimized, made familiar, predictable, convenient, where do we find these profound experiences that punctuate our routines? Where is the strangeness? Where are the strangers? Where is the magic? I believe we are at risk of engineering the romance out of our lives. Romance, which perhaps is the ultimate humanizer, the ultimate differential in a world of maximizers and optimizers. Now, we've been at a point of such disenchantment before. 200 years ago, the original Romantic movement stood up against reason and enlightenment by espousing mystery and emotion and ambiguity. I believe we're witnessing a new disenchantment, and we need a new Romantic movement, this time in business, led by business leaders, by business people, in response to the disenchantment caused by the datafication, the quantification of everything. Now, <laughs> I see your faces and you probably wonder, like, hmm, this sounds pretty lofty, so how is that going to work? How can you be a romantic in business? Who is that mysterious business romantic? Well, let's start by identifying who it isn't. This guy. Who is the anti-romantic, right? The enemy of the romantic. Enemy number one is the cynic. The cynic who knows the prize of everything but the value of nothing, as Oscar Wilde famously wrote. The cynic who says, it's business, it's business, business, right? It's nothing personal, it's business. Winners and losers. Enemy number two is the data cruncher. I live in Silicon Valley, I'm surrounded by many. The data cruncher who believes only in data as the only objective truth. And enemy number three, the anti-romantic number three, is the super-optimized, augmented, efficient, super-self, the exponential self, the exponential organization. We don't need more exponential organizations. We need more exponentially humane organizations. So how do we do that? How do we actually design for romance? What are the design principles of romanticism? So I identified rules, what I call the rules of enchantment, and three of which I want to share with you today. The first one is called find the big in the small. There's a staggering statistic I came across a few weeks ago. The average American has only one close friend. And the number is similar in the UK and in other countries, and that number has been declining over the past 10 years. And so much so that some people proclaim this to be the age of loneliness and, and call out a crisis of friendship. And you might wonder, how is that possible in a hyper-connected age? How can anyone possibly be lonely? But there's a difference between togetherness 
and intimacy. The opposite of loneliness is not togetherness, it's intimacy, as the writer Richard Bach noted. And I think we are in desperate need for more intimacy in this digital age. And there are a number of experiences at the workplace and in marketing that are now catering to the sense of intimacy. The renaissance of the good old dinner format, where strangers meet over dinner, break bread, and discuss important matters. There's a grassroots phenomenon in the States called, let's have dinner and talk about death. A very unlikely invitation. But the founder says, Michael Hepp, the founder says, it's not true that we don't want to have a conversation about the dignity of a good death, we just haven't gotten the right invitations yet. There's another uh, social experiment that has to do with inti intimacy that's called the I Am Here Days, run by a friend of mine, Priya Parker, in New York City. So they convened 15, 20 friends uh, one Sunday every month to spend eight hours nonstop together to explore a neighborhood of New York City. The principle is no digital devices, no distractions. You have to commit to being together for eight hours, which is really hard, <laughs> including all the inevitable boredom that, you know, that entails. So it's the idea that if you spend eight hours together with one person, rather than eight times one hour, you have a much more intimate, meaningful connection. It's the idea of thick presence rather than thin presence. And of course, artists have perfected and mastered the art of thick presence for a while. And we can take a leaf from that. Marina Abramovich, for example, the performance artist, did this wonderful exhibition at MoMA New York called The Artist is Present, where she sat across a visitor at a time for five minutes at a time for a total of 716 hours, celebrating vulnerability, authenticity, intimacy. Imagine what that might look like at work, having thick days. If you locked yourself into a room with a colleague, uh, no distractions, no digital devices, and you just spent eight hours together on one idea, one project, or you went on walking meetings, right, which of course are fostering intimacy, but also, as neuroscience tells us, are more productive. In fact, the most productive meaning occurs at a, an average pace of 1.8 miles per hour. <laughs> so you might say, oh, this all sounds really analog and nostalgic and, you know, but nostalgia is often misunderstood as a longing for a time gone by, when in fact it comes from the Greek term nostos algos, which describes the aching, an old pain it means, and describes an aching from, uh, from the suffering, the longing for something profound, something existential that we have forgotten and disconnected ourselves from. And there's a growing number of experiences that cater to that sense, that need for nostalgia. Of course, the maker movement, the DIY movement, the rise of local artisans, all of which are trying to overcome the alienation between maker and product. Or the rise of the curatorial, brain pickings by Maria Popova is a great example, right? It's an assortment of articles because of her taste. She sends it out to 100,000 subscribers, celebrating subjectivity instead of um, the algorithmic recommendation engine. And I think we are craving these old-fashioned concierges who treat us as unique individuals, as subjective individuals, and offer us an escape path from the algorithmic world. And we see this happening even in the, in the realm of professional social networking. Uh, there's a startup in, in Berlin somewhere that actually tries to reinvent uh, professional networking by not displaying just linear versions of ourselves as resumes and a set of accomplishments. Not like LinkedIn, where you, know, you endorse people you don't know for skills they don't have. This is much more about the multitude of our personalities, our passions and projects at work, about a more intimate version of ourselves at work. 
And by the way, I'm not against data, I'm not against technology. There are wonderful ways to use technology for romantic purposes, to create intimacy. This is a great and wonderfully quirky example. It's an app called Forgotify that lets you discover and play the four million songs that have never been played on music streaming service Spotify. So it uses an algorithm to turn against an algorithmic world. It creates a platform for the strange and the quirky, for the romance that awaits us at the lonely end of the long tail. So all these formats create small moments of attachment, which, as every marriage researcher will tell you, are critical for a successful, healthy marriage. We need to appreciate, appreciate again the beauty of things that don't scale. Design principle number one, rule of enchantment number uh, two, is keep the mystique. So we're inundated with data, and everybody, of course, is embracing radical transparency as the new norm of doing business. I believe because of that, secrecy and mystery make experiences meaningful again. When everything is open, nothing is open. So what do we choose to close? One way of instilling mystique back into our experiences is, of course, literally the surprise. Catches off us catches us off guard, and it shall, is, shall come as no surprise that there's a startup in New York called Surprise Industries that does just that. It offers surprises as a service, or SaaS, as the software folks would call it. Uh, then another way of uh, adding surprises to the customer experience are subscription boxes, right? like Birchbox, where you can subscribe, you get a curated box, you don't know what's in it, and the point is, it doesn't matter. The surprise is the product. The same principle applies to uh, mystery screenings, which is what Secret Cinema does in the UK. So they invite, they draw thousands of people to surprise locations reenacting a movie without disclosing what they're actually showing until the very end, until the very last minute. And again here too, it doesn't matter really which movie they're showing, the surprise, the secret is the product. Prime produces a startup in New York that holds meetings in the dark. House of Genius is a networking series in the US that does not disclose the identities of participants. Secret rooms are becoming the latest thing in Silicon Valley high-tech startup offices. And at MBBJ, the company I used to work for, we even launched a secret society at work to imagine our company's alter ego. Etsy, by the way, the creative e-commerce site, has a ministry of unusual business. Nobody really knows who's a member and what they exactly do. <laughs> Their sole mandate is to inject delightful surprises into everyday work. So making the familiar strange again, um, taking on multiple identities, accessing another world, those are all romantic principles. But those are also the traits of virtual reality and augmented reality technologies, which you could argue are maybe the romantic technologies of a new romantic era. And that's interesting because they actually present an opportunity for moral capacity of romanticism. Because putting yourself into the shoes of others, imagining different worlds, actually helps you foster empathy. And that's exactly what the world leaders did at the World Economic Forum in Davos last year. They were given AR, VR glasses, and they basically transported themselves, beamed themselves into refugee camps, fostering empathy. So I came all the way from mystery to empathy and back, but all these formats uh, create a new form of scarcity, things and experiences that we never really fully possess, we never really fully comprehend, and that don't last, which of course, unfortunately, is also a hallmark of romance. They restore friction and doubt in a world of knowledge, total knowledge, and seamlessness. The brand agency Lander published a report a few weeks ago that said, TMI, too much information, is the new paradigm of doing business. I believe not enough information, NEI, is far more intriguing. 
Knowledge might be power, but not knowing is the much more powerful experience. That brings me to the last of the three design principles and rules of enchantment. It's called suffer a little, which highlights the fact that romance is not identical with happiness. You have skin in the game, there's a dark side to it. But that is counter to the way we design most of our workplace and customer experiences, which are all designed for instant gratification, ease of use, comfort, and convenience. Ultimately, probably resulting to Amazon delivering everything we desire via drones to our doorstep. And yet, at the same time, why is it that we camp out in front of Apple stores, right, when a new product comes out, day and night? Why is it that we climb up the mountaintops of the Alps just to see the leading bikers of the Tour de France fly by in seconds? Why is it that more than 50,000 people just a couple of weeks ago embark on this annual pilgrimage to the Burning Man Festival in the Black Rock Nevada desert, celebrating radical self-expression, essentially losing control? So when you talk to evolutionary psychologists, they will tell you that our brains are still wired for the Stone Age. We're still looking for these life-threatening, critical events that assess our fitness, right? That make us come alive, that give our lives meaning, extreme experiences. However, Thank God, we have all but banned them from our modern domesticated societies, but we still need them. So what do we do? Well, we go bungee jumping, skydiving, we run ultra marathons, or we go to Ikea. <laughs> Ikea has perfected the art of suffering. Ikea has perfected the art of frustration, right? If you're uh, going to Ikea and the, the parkour is like the seventh circle of hell, if you try to assemble a Billy Oslo clip-on piece of furniture, it's like a painful reminder of your own existential incompetence, right? It's an exercise in sacrifice. Frustration is part of the equation, and they know it. And the same principle applies to loyalty programs as well. We never cash in on our frequent flyer miles, right? It's a per the promise of permanent unfulfillment. It's a very romantic proposition. Another example of suffering is a nightclub in New York called The Box. The owner, Randy Weiner, was once asked about the success factors of the box. Why are you so successful? And he said, well, it's very easy. We study very carefully what our customers desire, and then we do the exact opposite. <laughs> Which means that in the case of the box, if you buy the highest priced ticket, you end up in the kitchen doing dishes. You're pushed out of your comfort zone, that's why it's meaningful again. And I don't have to remind you of that, right? The ice bucket challenge. So the greater the labor of love, the more meaningful the experience. The more we sacrifice, the more we suffer, the more we belong. So ask your customers to make an effort. Ask your colleagues and partners to wait, frustrate them, so that they value what they cannot get and reap the ultimate reward, which is the desire intact, the thrill not gone. So those were three principles of romanticism, the three rules of enchantment, and I hope that they illustrated the spirit of business romance that I'm trying to describe, I do believe that we're seeing a shift from the smart connected age to a new romantic era where a different set of values becomes important, where we embrace ephemerality over permanence, uniqueness over scale, generosity, giving more than we take, emotion over reason or as important as reason, subjectivity over the objective truth, and celebrating our unquantified selves, not just our quantified selves. And yes, we do like convenience and comfort, but we love those rebels and contrarians and romantics who give us a heavy dose of punch-drunk love. And I think we need to learn again to value what we cannot measure. 
Because that's part of a more humane business, which I believe has three pillars, doing good, feeling good, and feeling more. Now, doing good has been around for a while. It's the principle, of course, of corporate social responsibility, purpose-driven business, conscious capitalism. That is very important, and it has gotten much more prominence. Feeling good is all about work-life integration, mindfulness, well-being, which is also important. The area that I feel really passionate about, that I think is underutilized and underestimated, is to feel more, to bring our full selves to work with everything that entails. Why is that important? Because of this quote by the poet Maya Angelou, people will forget what you said, they will forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. And in business, as my friend Jochen Breuer always points out, we actually focus 80% of our time on the hard facts, right? Data, numbers, spreadsheets, and we underestimate the bottom of the iceberg, relationships, emotions. We should invert it. We should spend much more time on the so-called soft factors because they're becoming more important, especially in an age of automation and quantification. So I think going forward, organizations have a choice. There's two paths in a post-human, automated, quantified world. One is to become the Amazon right, of your industry, which is a super-optimized, brutally efficient, super-quantified organization that is not so touchy-feely and probably very inhumane. Or you can be a very data-savvy company, like Airbnb, that is very smart in, in leveraging access capacity, but having a very romantic principle at the core, which is to put yourselves into the shoes of others, to peek into the lives of others. That's exactly what Airbnb enables, strangeness, an encounter with strangeness. So I believe there is an ROI of romance. It comes with business benefits. If you're not innovative enough, well, maybe you're not romantic enough. Maybe you're not foolish, not daring enough to imagine the possibility of another world. If your customers don't love you, give them more than just solutions to problems. And if your employees are uninspired, well, add some, some drama, some mystery, some adventure to the mix. I think we must romanticize business in order to humanize it. So I would encourage you to use data not just to demystify, but to mystify, to extend the territory beyond the map, to design not only for convenience, but for friction, to discover without immediate exploitation, to create things that are not only more useful and more efficient, but also more meaningful and more beautiful. We romantics just want to feel more, and business is our ultimate adventure. So I want to leave you with a quote by the very wise romantic poet William Wordsworth, who said, uh, to begin, begin. So how do you become a business romantic, whether you are a card-carrying business romantic already, or you're a cynic, or you're a closet romantic? How do you start tomorrow? So it's all, of course, about building romantic muscle, the power of habits. So you can apply the three principles I shared and see what they do to your organization. And I promise you something beautiful and unexpected is going to happen. Or you can join the Business Romantic Society, which I founded, of course, it's secret. Uh, you can apply, <laughs> which is a community that connects like-minded romantics all over the world. We want to exchange best practices and, and build uh, courage and confidence to claim space for romance and business. Or, and that's a very modest ask, you can just start to view the world of business with different eyes. 
and use the term romance and romanticizing in a different way. Not in a negative way, because so often business people say, oh, I'm a business person, I'm not a romantic. Or you are romanticizing, right? I think they belong together, they must go together. I am a business person, but I'm also an unabashed romantic. And I believe the world would be a better place if we had more romance in our lives. And I believe we can and must find it and create romance through business. Thank you very much.